1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And Father, we ask that as we take this time in the word of God to continue in our worship of you now, that Lord, you just help us by the help and power of your Holy Spirit and his grace to understand from these verses what it is that you're trying to say to us as your church collectively and just each and one of us individually. Lord, we ask, speak, your servants are listening. Give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive. And as always, we pray your spirit would be our teacher and the one who'd speak to our hearts this day. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't think the word motivation should always have a, a negative connotation, as I think sometimes uh, it can tend to. Motivation defined is really just the reason that someone has for acting or behaving. Uh, so there can be bad motivations, and certainly we understand that, but at the same time, there can be good and healthy motivation as the reason that someone has for acting and doing something. In the same way with inspiration, inspiration kind of in connection to motivation refers to the mental or emotional stimulus or what prompts us to actually do something. So motivation is the reason. Inspiration is kind of that internal stimulus mentally, emotionally for why we act. It's what prompts us. And having a reason to do something and as well the internal drive or stimulus to do something I think is really a great help not only to get started maybe in a right direction but it also becomes the thing that kind of helps us stay on track sometimes and maybe to push through weariness or discouragement or challenges and and maybe finish what we know is a good thing that we're doing now in connection to that I think it's fair to ask what should be our motivation to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? What should be the reason for us remaining faithful to serve the Lord? And sometimes it's helpful to ask as well, where does inspiration come from to do that? If I need that internal stimulus to prompt me to keep going in challenging times or when it's hard to remain faithful, where does that internal stimulus to inspire me to come from? Well, I think some of that, certainly not exhaustive, but some of that we find in verses 13 to 16 this morning. We find some reason why we should remain faithful to the Lord and some of what inspires us to do that. Now, through the entire letter, and we're coming obviously to the close of it, Paul has been kind of speaking to Timothy as a spiritual overseer, and we've seen him really guiding this very godly but younger and less experienced pastor, Timothy, someone whom he mentored, and he's been instructing him on spiritual matters regarding his own life as well as the functions of how the local church is to operate. Remember, he said in chapter 3 very clearly, I'm writing these things so that you may know how to conduct yourselves there in the house of God. So part of the reason for writing this wasn't personal instruction alone, 
It also was to teach this is how the church is to operate. Here's how the local church is to function by God's design. This is the way we are to handle our affairs and how we are to conduct ourselves as the family of God. And he's really been charging Timothy with kind of some, we might say, military-style commands, kind of like a commanding officer, like a sergeant speaking to the rest of the troop that's under his leadership. He's been giving Timothy some charges to execute his duties as a good soldier in the Lord in order to stay healthy as a man of God, in order to be fruitful in his own spiritual life and useful in the purposes which God was working through his life in order to ensure as well that the church he was serving and leading would stay healthy and that it would be a fruitful congregation and they would stay on track in the things of the Lord. And we saw last time together in our most recent communication, he just gave Timothy there some more of those really strong authoritative commands as he was kind of really challenging Timothy that these are some things that are essential for you to be a man of God. And again, we talked about the importance of each one of us being a a man of God, realizing we are God's man for such a time as this. We are God's woman and should be a woman of God for such a time as this in our lives. And he said to Timothy, particularly there in verses 11 and 12, that there were some things that were essential to help be a godly man or a godly woman, things like that he must continually flee, remember he said, things that are wrong and things that are unhealthy and temptations to engage in sin and worldly ways of living, the cares of this life that Jesus warned about that can choke out our spiritual lives as we live in this world. And he said, Timothy, you have to constantly be fleeing these kind of things materialism and overattachment to wealth and world. And he's got to keep running from these things so they don't drag you down. And then he said, not just fleeing what's wrong, but he also, remember he said, and then pursue things that pertain to godly living. And he talked about how he should be constantly also chasing after and continually pursuing greater degrees of righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. And then he said, and you also got to be willing to fight. And to realize that part of this Christian experience is a battlefield uh, and that there is a degree in the Christian life of recognizing that we are soldiers in a spiritual war and in a war there are constant battles that go on. And because that's a reality that we have to be willing as Christians sometimes to fight the good fight of faith and as a soldier to overcome things, that Jesus wants us to be overcomers. Are we going to have battles in this life? Absolutely. Or sometimes we're going to feel like we're wounded and defeated, most certainly. But Jesus wants us to overcome. Not to be defeated and overcome, but to be overcomers. And, and to keep pressing forward, even though things are hard at times. And he said one of the best ways to do that, he said lastly, is to take hold of eternal life. To periodically, once again, take hold of eternal truths and realities to remember it's not about all this temporal existence. And that's the hard part. We get kind of bogged down here. But he says, Timothy, if it's hard sometimes, what you got to do is you got to once again take fresh hold of those eternal realities that you're going to heaven one day. Uh, and there's more than just this earthly life. There is a kingdom coming and this life is a vapor. And sometimes that eternal perspective helps us to carry onward. So Timothy, no doubt, he was facing personal challenges, dealing with resistance and difficulties, and no doubt that made it, just like for you and I, challenging for him to carry onward sometimes as a 
Christian. There were times where he was weary and discouraged. So Paul, it almost as if seems as he's wrapping up the letter, tries to motivate and to inspire him to press onward toward the high calling that he's been given. And he says to him, verse 13, Timothy, look what he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives to life all things before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, the idea is without stain upon yourself, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Paul here from a heart of love, wanting to see Timothy do well. Again, remember in 2 Timothy, Paul is going to say, I fought the good fight. I finished my race. There's laid up for me now a crown of righteousness there in heaven. And he's almost saying, Timothy, here's the baton. It's your turn now. I fought my battle. You now fight your battle. And here he's kind of prompting Timothy, look, I love you, son. I want to see you do well in your generation. I want to see you be faithful to the Lord in your season. And so he's now strongly persuading him to remain faithful to what he knew would be right. And so as we look at verses 13 and 14, I kind of in two ways want to look at it. First of all, just to see what Paul's instructing Timothy in regards to what he's asking him to do, and then secondly, how he was trying to inspire him with motivation, giving him some motivation and reasons to remain faithful in his earthly existence while he was still serving the Lord. The first thing he says there, verse 13, as he begins is notice, again, you could tell the passion behind his voice, Timothy, I urge you, he says, in the sight of God. That word urge there, your translation, others do render it, I charge you. And again, in the original language, that's a military style command. It's the picture, the word Paul uses of a military commander giving a order or a charge to someone under their authority. It's the overseeing officer giving a strong command to his soldier to act and to do what's right. And what was he urging or charging Timothy to do? He says, verse 14, it was, verse 14, to keep this commandment. Now, question becomes, what particular commandment is Paul talking about? Some translations say, keep the commandment. Others say, keep this commandment. It could be Paul is generally speaking of the summary, just in sort of a summarized way, the or this commandment of everything that he's written in the letter and commanded so far. That's possible. Or he could be referencing maybe a specific command that he had given to Timothy from the very beginning of the letter. He seems to have given him the first commandment, which was to remain there in Ephesus, to hold the line spiritually and to hold up sound doctrine and to hold the purity of the gospel message and to remain there in Ephesus and not run off because it was hard or run away because it was difficult, but to hold the line there and to, to fulfill his post. Or again, it could be just what we read just last time together, verses 11 and 12, that most recent set of commands when he was charging him to flee and to pursue and to continue to fight and lay hold, it could be he's saying, look, I'm urging you do this. I can tell you what to do, but now I'm giving you a good kick in the posterior. I want you to do this thing. I'm urging you, don't just nod your head. I'm asking you act upon this. Carry this out, fulfill this, because it's one thing to know the right thing to do, and it's another thing to actually do it, right? You know, I've talked to people before. I remember one occasion where I was 
you know, periodically visiting someone who uh, was on their deathbed and their health was declining. And, you know, you, you have meaningful conversations with people at time. And I remember one of the things they kept constantly saying every time I would visit with them as their health was declining, as they would reflect on their life. And they were a believer and they said, you know, I knew better. I just didn't do better. And to me, that was so picturesque that as an older believer passing toward, I knew better. I just didn't do better. I understood the truth. I just wish I would have acted on it a little bit more. I wish I would have obeyed and followed through. And, and so Paul here understands that challenge for all of us as Christians at times, that disconnect. So he says, Timothy, I'm urging you to faithfully keep doing the things to seek to be the godly man that you're called and intended to be. And look what he says, in order that, look what he says, verse 14, in order that you might remain, how? Without spot. The idea there is without a stain being incurred upon your life. Things like compromise, morally and spiritually, indulging in sin, disregarding God's ways of doing things. They all result to some degree of kind of stains being incurred upon our lives as believers, stains of error, stains of guilt, stains of shame and regret, and spots that stain our reputations or stain our character as the Lord's people, unfortunately, they don't just cause us a bunch of heartache, they also cause to some degree us to lose respect among other people. Because when we incur those stains and those spots, if you would, upon our lives through compromise or sin or disregarding God's ways, and we kind of stain our Christian life and incur spots upon ourselves it's an unfortunate thing because it does tend to have a negative effect, not just for us personally, but also to those who are connected to us. And look, I can illustrate this very easily. If you have an option when you go in to get dressed to select a shirt that's nice and clean or to pull a shirt out of the hamper that's got a mustard stain from your hot dog that you watched the Philadelphia Eagles successfully getting themselves in the Super Bowl last week, which are you going to pick? I would hope you'd pick the clean shirt to go out into public, not the shirt that's got the stain on it and the wrinkles in it, right? Because you want to be presentable. Because if you're wearing the stained garment, you're going to kind of lose respect among people. They're going to go, why are you wearing a stained shirt? Why? I mean, what? And, and you're going to not have a degree of respect. And so God wants us to be effective. God wants us to have an impact upon people around us whether it's our own family members, to be influential as parents with our kids, because kids watch things, and kids are aware, and we want to have authority and respect, and when we speak into their life with integrity, we don't want to speak into their life with this big glaring mustard stain across our life, and my kid's going, well, you, you tell me these things, but yet I watch your life, Dad, or I see your life, Mom, and I'm a little confused, and, and so it's very important that we, we take notice of these kind of things. We don't want to have unnecessarily those things that spot and stain our lives because they're errors. And so wise people will do all they can to be careful to avoid incurring unnecessarily spots and stains upon their lives. Not just because we don't want to wrestle with our own guilt and conscience, but because we want to be effective to others around us. And look, thank goodness for Jesus' forgiveness, right? Thank goodness that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can experience that internally, 
but the outward effect of the stain or the spot upon our life, that's the thing that becomes the bigger quandary. And no doubt Paul's saying to him, Timothy, I don't want you to have that dynamic there. He says, I want you to try and stay without spot. And he says, remain blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Now, the word blameless, as I've said before, that doesn't mean perfect because that's not a reality. No Christian is perfect. You're never going to be perfected on this side of eternity until you're free from your body of sin. We're going to periodically make mistakes and fail. No one can live sinlessly. But the reality is, is the Lord wants us to try and live in a blameless way before the Lord and before others, which speaks of just being someone who's in a condition in your walk with the Lord that there's not clear, conscious, obvious wrongdoing in your life that you're blamable for. The idea is that you're living in such a way before the Lord that there's no conscious, ongoing wrongdoing in your life that you could easily be held blamable for, that you seek to avoid those things, that you make an effort to live a clean life with a clear conscience before the Lord, and there's not something going on that you could be blamable for as far as a current sin that you're living in or some disobedience or whatever. And again, why? Not just because of us, but for the Lord but because God wants our lives to be usable vessels. And, and if we have spots and stains and we're, we're living in a way that's not blameless before others, it really diminishes the ability for us to have an impact upon other people. It's going to hinder people's willingness to listen to us or hear from us or receive from us if we're in a, some way in a compromised position and people know that. I mean, case in point, I'll be very candid. Last evening, one of our questions in our marriage Q&A time was about the subject of pornography and how do you help your spouse if they're struggling with pornography? Well, let me give a fitting example. Trish and I were sitting up here. If Trish or I were both or one of us watching pornography, it would have been pretty hypocritical to try and answer a question like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we were blamable of doing that very thing that somebody said, hey, we're trying to figure out this struggle, uh, if we had that spot on our life or we're living in, in a way that wasn't blameless, it would have been like, who are you to tell us? You have no authority to speak on that. So again, to what degree we can, we want to have a degree of a clean conscience and right life before the Lord so that we can speak with a degree of credibility and respect and that were received by others that were trying to communicate to him. Paul knew this was very important, so it seems he was concerned for Timothy to remain faithful. Timothy, be careful, he says. Keep to the things that help you to remain a godly man so that you keep spots out of your life and that you stay blameless until the return of the Lord. Now, with understanding what Paul's asking him to do, let's consider how Paul, as I said, gives to Timothy, I believe in these same verses here, some reasons why to remain faithful. Some of what might incentivize him to godly living, Paul's trying to endeavor to inspire him. A few things I take note of by way of observation. He's saying, Timothy, I urge you, please stay faithful to the Lord. And the first thing he tells him as a motivation for that, the first thing he says is because God's always observing your life. Timothy, do you need a reason to stay faithful to the Lord, let me give you a few. The first one is this, because God's always observing your life. Do you see what he says there in verse 13? I urge you what? In the sight of God. He then says to keep this commandment and stay spotless and blameless. But I'm urging you in the sight of God. Why is that helpful? 
Because Timothy might be prone, because he's a human being just like you and I at times, to get discouraged in his spiritual life, to get weary, maybe to keep doing what was right was difficult when others weren't doing what was right, and you're thinking, man, I'm feeling lonely, and, and you're not feeling encouraged. And Timothy might be prone, I know you would never think this, why bother to keep doing what's right anymore? Why bother? I mean, I just, what's, what's a good reason to keep doing what's right? And Paul's simple answer would be, because God's watching. Doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Timothy, it doesn't matter if other people are paying attention to what you're doing. Here's a motivation, because God's watching. Do it in the sight of God. God's always observing. He's fully aware of everything, and he is pleased by your faithfulness, Timothy. He's pleased by your obedience. He sees the times when you flee what's wrong and you pursue what's right. He sees the time when it's hard, but yet you fight the good fight of faith and you keep pressing onward as a good soldier. And he's proud, son, of your courage and your commitment to be faithful. And more than that, because God's watching and it's done in his sight, he will also make sure to reward you. You know, when you read Jesus' statements in the Gospels, numerous times Jesus spoke of how what things we do as the Lord's followers that both he and the Father are always aware of and that they will reward us for such. Remember, Jesus said even a cup of cold water, something that seems insignificant, small. How many times is everybody aware of somebody just giving a thirsty person a cup of cold water? That is something small, may seem insignificant, may seem that it's, you know, kind of unknown, you know, it, it's kind of done under the radar. Nobody's even aware, but he says, but God saw you do that. God saw you do that kind thing to help a person or refresh a person or speak some living water into their life, and God will reward you. Remember, Jesus also said the things that are done in secret, prayer and other things that we do, giving, and, and he says, those things, your heavenly Father saw what you did in secret. And so there are going to be things in our Christian life at times that we will do that no one else will know of. And, and there'll be no recognition for it. But though there's no recognition for it, don't think that God doesn't recognize, see, and that he won't one day reward you for it. He says, Timothy, this is an incentive. This is a reason to stay faithful because God's always observing your life. Now, in the same manner, that's a reason to be faithful. On the flip side of that, that also is a reminder to be faithful because everything's in the sight of God. That means if and when we compromise or if we're unfaithful, or we err into sin, we need to always remember God is fully aware and it's done in the sight of God, right? And that should keep us in check as well to realize that everything is in God's sight. Hebrews 4 says everything that we do is naked and open before the eyes of the Lord to whom we must give account. So you want a great incentive towards holiness? Ask God to bring to your inner being, just a greater consciousness of the reality that God is aware of everything that I am doing all the time. And we may be able to hide things from others or do things privately or behind closed doors, but that's a really bad idea because the reality is God sees everything. And that should sober us as believers when we're tempted to sin or persistent. That should be the thing that motivates us to turn from error quickly. And to realize, man, God is fully aware, and if we need inspiration to be faithful, Paul says, here's one good one. Everything's happening in the sight of God. Let that give you a good reason to be faithful. A second thing he mentions, I think, is sort of a reason and incentive to remain faithful. He would say, Timothy, because your life is being sustained by God. 
your life's being sustained by God. He says, I urge you in the sight of God, he then goes on to say, who is the one who gives life to all things. And the picture there of giving life in the language isn't just initially giving life as an origin, but continuously is giving life in the sense of sustaining or preserving. And so here, no doubt, Paul says of God the Father, because the Bible teaches, yes, Timothy, he's not only the originator of all human life, but the Bible also teaches God is the sustainer of all human life, that he's fully in control of that. He gives life to all, and then he takes full responsibility as the life giver to keep controlling our lives. Paul says in Colossians, in him, Jesus, all things consist or hold together. Literally, the only reason your heart is still beating since I first started speaking is because Jesus has been keeping it beating, right? We are dependent upon God for our next breath. The Bible tells us in the book of Job, and we see it in Daniel's book as well and other places, Job 12.10 says, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Why do we take our next breath? Because God allowed it. Why someday do we all take our final breath? Because that was the last breath that God gave to us in our earthly experience. But again, to recognize that God is the sustainer of life and to know that is helpful to remain faithful because despite resistance, Timothy maybe being threatened because of his faithfulness in Christianity, concerns of his welfare or persecution or we're going to do this, Timothy had to remember his ultimate responsibility was not to preserve his own life. It was not his responsibility to sustain his own life. That was God's job, to protect him and to preserve him as he remained faithful so Timothy could rest in faith and keep being faithful and overcome the human fears at times that may prompt him to maybe shrink back from being faithful because of self-preservation. Oh, if I remain faithful, something may happen to me, or if I do this for God, something may happen to me harmful. And Paul's saying, no, God gives life, son. Do you think you're keeping yourself alive? Do you think you're taking care of yourself? God is the sustainer of life. It's his power that keeps us alive until our time on earth is completed. And sometimes, as human beings, we can tend to become improperly fearful to a degree on this earth because we're living with a mindset of self-preservation. And our natural human instinct, and, and, and we have this thing hardwired into us, we call it a survival instinct. But sometimes that survival instinct actually kind of gets in our way to live out the Christian life, which is a life to be lived by faith and not dominated by fear, or a life to be lived by faithfulness, not really what's going to work out best for us in a natural or earthly existence. And so faithfulness is something that's very important and we don't ever want fear or concern of what may happen to our life to be the deciding factor of what we're willing to do for the Lord because we're really just thinking, well, I mean, I don't know if I'm willing to do that because if I do that, something might happen to me. Or if I do that, that may have a negative impact upon me or my family. And sometimes that can be a very, very big hindrance that will always be something, that fear that can interfere with you faithfully following the Lord or faithfully following the Lord's calling, right? There are people who perhaps should have stepped out to serve the Lord, and the only thing that held them back was fear. There are people all over this planet, I assure you, who were called to mission fields, 
And some of them, not all, some people did not answer the call of God because of fear of what could have happened or might happen if they would have answered God's call. And sadly, it interrupted them serving the Lord. And for all of us in big and small ways, we have to remember God gave us our life and God will continue to sustain our life until the day our lives are over. And we have to live by faith and remain faithful despite how it looks, trusting God's the giver and the sustainer of my life. He's in complete control. There's no safer place to be, folks, than in the center of the will of God. Jesus told the disciples, let's go to the other side. Do you remember what he did? He drove them right into a storm. Their lives were in jeopardy, and they knew it. Lord, we're sinking, and, 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 but yet they were right in the center of the will. They were safer in the storm than they were back comfortable on the shore, dry and cozy and comfortable. And look, this is such an important, important thing because sadly, there are people who in their Christian walk and their Christian service, because they are too hyper-fixated on self-preservation, that they don't worship the Lord, they don't serve the Lord, and, and they let fear as if somehow they're controlling and keeping themselves alive, or they're going to make sure that they're safe. or they're... That's God's business. That's God's business. You do what the Lord tells you to do. Don't shrink back in faith. Be faithful. Follow the Lord. He will preserve you. He'll protect you. He's your sustainer. Paul says, let that be an incentive to remain faithful. And I think he alludes to as well, thirdly, that we should be faithful to honorably represent Jesus who's the greatest example of faithful living. Look what Paul says, the latter half of verse 13. He says, do this before Christ Jesus, who he himself witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's describing the end of Jesus' life of earthly faithfulness. He's describing how at the end of Jesus' life, despite opposition our Lord experienced and suffering and mistreatment, that Jesus remained faithful to the end even when he was wearied and hurting, then he started being interrogated by Pilate, the governor, who was trying to intimidate him or get him to react wrongly. And Paul remembers that good, faithful confession of Christ before Pontius Pilate. We have it recorded in John's gospel, John 18. It says that Pilate said to Jesus, your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should be delivered from the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you rightly say that I am. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Then again in chapter 19, Pilate in the praetorium speaks to Jesus and says to him, where are you from? And then it says, Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And Jesus responded beautifully, you have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. That's a beautiful, fitting picture in the humanity of our Lord Jesus, recalling his faithfulness as a godly man in righteousness, giving a confident confession there before a governor, a very powerful human individual, 
regardless of what evil men were doing, Jesus did not cower to the pressures of evil in the society. He did not give in to the cultural dynamics. He knew God was ultimately in control, and Jesus knew that life was not about earthly attainments. It was about doing what was right in connection to the eternal kingdom. That's what truly matters. And in spite of human temptation, Jesus did not act wrongly. He stood faithful. He said, wait, wait, my kingdom's not about this life. My kingdom is about something that's eternal. And, and you may think that you have power, but you ultimately only have limited power that God gives to you. And so Jesus, just in a beautiful way, it's almost as if Paul points to him and says, Timothy, do you need an example of faithfulness? We're Christians, we're Christ followers. Be like our Lord. He stood and made that good confession and was faithful until the end. And now the spirit of our Lord, the Bible says, dwells inside of us. That same spirit of Jesus that we read about here, that spirit of Jesus dwells inside of you if you're a Christian this morning to give you the same courage and the same confidence in kingdom principles and eternal things to stay faithful to the Lord. One fourth and final thing before we move on that I see Paul using as maybe a, a reason or an incentive to Timothy to stay faithful is really simply this, is reminding Timothy in verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15 here that there is an earthly end to the Christian life and the battles that are here, that there is an earthly end to the Christian life. Because look what he says, Timothy. He says, keep this commandment without spot and blameless, and then he adds, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Timothy, do you need another reason to be faithful? This earthly battle doesn't last forever. There's coming a time where there's going to be an earthly end. This isn't a forever struggle. There's a finish line to this. The battle is going to end one day, and if we don't die physically first, and none of us knows the day or the hour of our physical death, if that does not come first, the only other option for all of us, folks, is that our Lord Jesus is coming again as he returns, and he is going to appear and gather his followers out of this world and bring us home to our heavenly inheritance and set us free from this earth's fallen condition. And that is the blessed hope of the Christian, is it not? It's awaiting the deliverance of our Lord from this sinful world and all of its struggles by his return and his appearance. Again, the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus, after completing his earthly work, dying on the cross, resurrecting, that he ascended back into heaven, but yet God's word repeatedly promises and Jesus himself promised that this Jesus whom we love and whom we don't see now with our eye, but we follow and we know him, that that Jesus is coming again and will appear for us to take us out of this earthly existence and to deliver us from the struggles and to bring us to be in glory in heaven with him. Titus chapter 2 says it this way, we are looking as Christians for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the appearing that Paul was reminding Timothy of. Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. The term is literally many dwelling places. And if it were not so, Jesus said, I wouldn't lie to you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself that I, where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise to the believer. We're not stuck here forever. We're on foreign soil. It's a struggle. It's hard. It's difficult. Because this isn't heaven. And this isn't our long-term dwelling place. We're temporarily here for a season, but we are awaiting the deliverance of our Lord when he appears once again for us. Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 4 as what we should use to encourage and comfort one another, saying the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then Paul adds, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I mean, how do you comfort someone who's struggling and going through earthly hardships? How do you comfort and encourage someone who's weary and maybe even just feeling like they want to, I just, I don't even want to walk with the Lord anymore. Just to, how do you comfort them? You bring them back to reality of what's spiritually true. Look, I know it's hard. I know it's been tough here. You know, we, we, we've, we've been on the combat zone for a while. And I guarantee you, when people are on a combat zone, they probably get battle-wearied. And it's hard and it's difficult. But to, but to know one day the war ends. One day we're going to get out of here. At any given moment, our Lord can take us out of here and that there is something on the other side but notice the reminder of the Lord's appearing and return is that it is an unknown thing because Paul adds talking about the appearing of our Lord, which he will manifest, verse 15, in his own time. In other words, Paul's reminding us theologically as humanity that this will happen at the set time which God alone knows. Jesus said, no man can know the day or the hour. The exact set time is determined by the Father. Mankind is unaware and the Bible teaches will be surprised by the instantaneous appearing and coming of our Lord. Can we tell the season? Absolutely. And God's given us things in the word of God to be able to sense the season of his coming. But that being said, we're just simply called to live ready, to realize at any moment the imminent, which means immediate at any given time, the imminent return of our Lord can happen and to live in light of that realization that at any moment in time, Jesus can appear and he will interrupt human history and he will catch multitudes of multitudes off guard and he will instantly yank us off of this planet who know and love him and give us our eternal reward and many others will be sadly caught off guard in that reality. And look, that means two sides of that. It's great to know you can be delivered at any moment, but to know the Lord may show up at any moment and appear. I don't want Jesus to appear and to be acting like a knucklehead. I just don't. After all he's done for me and after as long as I've walked with him, I want to finish well, man. Like, I, I want to finish in a way whereby when he shows up... It, Woohoo! It's it's not. Oh man! Now I just couldn't you give me ten more minutes? I wasn't. I, I don't want that to be the case. But that's the reality of the instantaneous appearing of the Lord. 
that we would live ready, being faithful, giving our absolute best, living in light of eternity. And it's almost as if Paul ponders the greatness of the Lord, that his mind's just lifted in a moment of worship as he concludes our verses. He says, of the Lord, that he is, look, the blessed, verse 15, and only potentate, king of kings and Lord of lords. So Timothy, he's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. That will inspire you to be faithful and carry onward. He says, our Lord is the blessed and only potentate. Basically, a big word that means the supreme ruler with all potency or all power. And again, he's just reminding Timothy, no man on earth, even if powerful, is supremely in charge. And he's saying, don't ever forget that. And we need to never forget that too. That no matter what people are doing on this earth, our Lord is on his throne. He's the ultimate supreme ruler. And he can permit men some power for a season, but he ultimately has the final say. Our Jesus is the potentate. Our Jesus is the supreme ruler, and he can overrule in any situation and orchestrate what he wishes, and that should encourage our hearts. He calls him the king of kings and the lord of lords, which speaks of how he is the ultimate ruler over all those ruling. Again, just in a greater way, he's the lord over all human lords. And that ultimate rulership of Jesus should inspire us with hope as people. It should remind us, hey, it's okay. I know the Lord's still in charge. I'm going to keep doing the right things. He goes on, verse 16 of Jesus, to say, who alone has immortality. Literally, the Greek is deathlessness. It speaks the term of the ability to live forever and never be touched by death. And so he's describing how Jesus, in his eternal person, who made himself subject to death on earth for one period of time, that he himself in his eternal person as the son of God possesses the power of eternal life within himself. He's the immortal, eternal God. And through him and from him, by his presence in our life, we receive the gift of immortality to be able to overcome the death process. That's why the Bible says that the gift of God he has to give it to us, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus gives to us this ability to experience immortality that we're able to overcome physical death and the death process and live forever in the glorious presence of the Lord. And boy, that's a great encouragement at times, particularly if you've received Jesus and you're struggling in this earth, not just generally, but you're struggling in your earthly body as your tent that's mortal, is showing its mortality, and it's wearing out, and there's sickness and struggles and weakness and problems and challenges, but thankfully, your immortality is ahead of you. Thankfully, one day, you and I get to be released from this earthly body and all of its struggles and receive a glorified body free from all sickness, delivered from all pain, from all problems of health and human weakness and aging, and most wonderful of all, to never die again. I mean, just imagine that. To have to never fear that you're going to die, that your loved one's going to die, to never have to go to another memorial service the rest of eternity. Immortality, to live forever. That should inspire us to say, Lord, 
It's hard, but I want to keep going because I've got this blessed hope of immortality. He goes on to say of our Lord there in verse 16 that he is dwelling in unapproachable light, he says, whom no man has seen or can see. All the shining brilliance of the glorious eternal realm of heaven, that's what Jesus, that's what God the Father is dwelling in, the brightness stemming of the pure light of ultimate holiness from the Lord and our Heavenly Father is such a powerful, glorious light. He says it is unapproachable in the flesh of humanity. Why? Because it would literally overwhelm and melt these earthly bodies. You do realize that's one of the reasons we got to get a glorified body, why this mortal has to put on immortality. Because these physical eyes, amazing as they are, and they're incredible if you ever do a little research on the human eye, the way God's created for earth, but these human eyes could never behold the glory of God and the glory that he dwells in. They'd just melt right out of your sockets. It'd be like a science fiction movie. We'd just be obliterated if we entered into the presence of the Lord. Right? We remember when Paul had that spiritual encounter with the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And remember, the radiating glory from Jesus stepping out of the eternal realm, the Bible says, was so overwhelming, it says that the glory of Jesus radiating off for him was brighter than the noonday Mideastern sun. Now, I've been in the Mideast before. Some of you have been in the Mideast before. We think sometimes the sun's hot and bright here. The, the midday Mideastern sun is blazing, blazing hot. And the Bible says that Jesus' glory was so powerful, the radiating light, it eclipsed. The sun, the sun, we don't stare at the sun. And it says Jesus' glory eclipsed the sun like it was a little 40-watt light bulb. That's some incredible glory, some incredible light, some incredible power. That's why the mortal must put on immortality to be able to handle that in a glorified body to enter into the Lord's presence. And look, we live in an age, sadly, where many people, my personal conviction, are becoming very overly casual and irreverent and disrespectful towards God. And that's scary. You know, we were just talking this morning, myself and Chico, about a particular situation and people just being irreverent. And I said, you know, in some way, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you ever watch somebody, they're just, you know, dumb or maybe they're new in school and they come in and, and there's the, like the toughest kid in school and they pick a fight with that person. You're thinking, oh man, are you crazy? Do you know who you're instigating? And, and people just are poking God in the eye and spitting in his face and instigating this glorious God, being irreverent and casual, realizing not that God is so powerful and so awesome, but yet think of this from our perspective, this awesome, unapproachable God that no flesh can just casually enter into his presence, that awesome, holy God who's unapproachable by sinful man has now been made what? Accessible through what Jesus did. Through what Jesus accomplished for us, through Jesus, we can now approach, the Bible says, Hebrews 4, we can come boldly to a throne of grace, confidently, through Jesus. He's given us access by grace and through faith, and that one day, because of Jesus' work for us, not just can we pray to him and go directly to him now, we're literally for all eternity going to get to be in his presence and to live in his presence and to worship in his presence. And I think considering that reality, 
That's why Paul concludes saying, to whom, verse 16, be honor and everlasting power, amen, or let it be so. One translation says, all power and all honor to him forever, and let it be so. In other words, Paul's bringing Timothy to this closure of saying, Timothy, such a great king is worthy of yielding to his power. Timothy, don't ever resist him. Such a great king with such awesomeness, he says, he is worthy of us yielding to his power to just rule over our lives and to say, king, whatever you want from me, I'm just so glad to be a part of your kingdom. So whatever you want from me, my life's not yours. I'm just glad to be out of that kingdom of darkness with that old tyrannical ruler who was horribly ruining all of our lives, and I'm just so glad to be in this kingdom. And so whatever you want, have power over me, rule over me, use my life however you want to use it. And he says that same king is also worthy of great, he uses the word there, honor, honor. And that just speaks of giving to him honor and praise and glory and worship both now and forever. Look, you do realize that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity, don't you? Constantly, continually worshiping. That will be our eternal existence. And guess what? We get to practice now. We get, to pra we get a little foretaste of coming attractions because when we come together now, like we do this morning into the house of the Lord, it's our opportunity to start practicing for eternity, to lift our voices and to lift our hearts. And as that one song we sang, lifting up our hands, Lord, I don't have much. What that one song say? What's really fit for a king? But Lord, I lift up my hands. Thank you, Lord. I just, I praise you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And somehow, that's a sacrifice of praise that blesses him. But it's also what prepares us for eternity. And I tell you this, it's also what will fuel your tank as a Christian to get through the next few days as you shift your focus on eternity. And it'll help you remain faithful when it's hard. And it's hard at times, folks. But these are the things that help us stay faithful to the Lord to give us reason and motivation. Let's stand together and let's pray.